This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today we're here with another installment in our new series, The Case I Can't Forget. And I am so delighted to be joined by another one of my attendings, Dr. John O'Toole. His first time on the podcast, we've been trying to get him on for a long time, and finally the stars have aligned. He's agreed to come on and share a, a very impactful story with us today. Dr. O'Toole, welcome to the show. Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Thanks, JP. Glad to be here. Um, it's a pleasure to finally join you after listening to your podcast for a long time. Uh, you and, and Mike have done a great job with this uh, platform. Um, yeah, my name is John O'Toole. I'm a neurosurgical spine surgeon at Rush University uh, and uh, I've been here for almost 16 years now. Uh, and uh, my particular clinical interests are in spinal oncology and minimally invasive spine surgery. And so that's the practice from which uh, I, I draw what we talk about today. Right. And so, Dr. O'Toole, we, we were briefly talking about this story before we started recording. Um, as you said, this kind of fits squarely within your clinical interests and your, your subspecialty practice. So why don't we just get right into it? Set the stage and, and let's hear the story. Sure. When you, you asked me to pick a case that I couldn't forget, uh, this one came up pretty quickly because uh, it was early in my career, maybe my second year in practice, uh, and uh, sort of set the stage for a lot of the things that would uh, influence how I practice even today. Um, and also speaks to sort of the temporal evolution of clinical care paradigms, uh, and in particular, as we'll talk about in spinal oncology. So I'm a second year attending, I'm on call. Uh, I get a call from the chief resident at about four in the morning. 70 year old patient has come into the ER uh, after a fall uh, and has severe back pain and lower extremity weakness, urinary retention. So sure enough, they get the appropriate MRI CT and she's got a uh, L1 burst fracture, pathologic. Mm. Clearly neoplastic tissue in the body and extending actually uh, rostrally and caudally in the epidural space causing core compression, caudoquinic compression, so explains the neurological deficits. Also on the imaging it's clear she's got a large renal mass. Because mm. uh, so this wasn't known. This first was... presentation for this patient. Okay. So they had otherwise been well, independently living, healthy otherwise. So sure enough, it looks like it's going to be renal cell carcinoma with a, a spinal metastasis, as best we can tell. So sure enough, yeah, we'll talk about this patient. Clearly, she needs an operation to relieve the compression on her spinal cord, um, right. as well as get a diagnosis here and stabilize her unstable spine, sort of standard stuff. Okay, it's early in the morning. It's perfect. We'll get it teed up right away first thing in the morning and get this rolling. So I come in and uh, meet the, the patient. She's a very nice uh, a patient. She's uh, obviously in a lot of pain, um, despite you know getting morphine in the ER and everything like that. She's now in the ICU, and so her uh, son rolls in, um, who's uh, you know at that point is maybe a decade older than I was, uh, and uh, informs me that he's a physician. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, in fact, he's uh, an ICU physician uh, at another hospital. In the vicinity, and um, <laughs> oh, and, and, and you know, in many ways, a big part of this is is when you think about taking care of patients and and their families, is how to explain not only their condition but what you need to do. And obviously, if you're talking to someone in healthcare, you know, yeah, 
it becomes a lot easier to explain some of the details because there's already a knowledge base. But on the other hand, there's that underlying theme of, well, they also know what can go wrong. Mm -hmm. And they will have certain biases about what they should or shouldn't do to your family member, um, to their family member, rather, uh, based on those biases, and particularly when it's not in their field of expertise. Right. Um, so, so that goes into a lot of the conversation uh, with the families, and particularly when the family's a healthcare provider. So um, that's the backdrop for what will you know, be important later. So explain to them what needs to be done, big operation, decompression fusion, you know, that kind of thing. And, and both patient and, and son understood um, they were a bit reluctant. Uh, I think the son, as a critical care physician, had seen a lot of end-of-life type of patients. Right. So now realizing his mother probably has metastatic cancer. Um, and even at this stage, we're kind of in the early stages of um, tyrosine kinase inhibitors for renal cell. We certainly were nowhere near checkpoint inhibitors and that kind of thing. Sure. So life expectancies for metastatic cancer at that time weren't what they are today even. Um, it's amazing how much has changed. So I think he had this, was coming to grips with the fact that his mom might not be around long and I'm explaining this big surgery with long recovery and potential complications and so. And so you're simultaneously the physician telling the patient and son that there's a cancer diagnosis and oh by the way we have to do a big spine surgery now. Right. Yeah. Right. Which is a lot for anyone to handle. Right. Um, And when you know what can go wrong with metastatic cancer and how it looks I think it's even more to handle and, yeah. and, and take it's that crossover between your professional life and your personal life that uh, is one of the hardest things about being a physician I think actually um, so in any event they agree to the surgery so because he obviously sees it's the right thing to do or not. his mother can't move her, her left leg at all and the right one is weak so so we get to the OR and do the procedure it's a you know big L1 posterolateral corpectomy and a what a T11 to L3 fusion, you know, this kind of thing. And actually the surgery goes well, except for, you know, this is taken fairly urgently, mm-hmm. no time to embolize like we would routinely for renal cell. So this is uh, tremendous blood loss during the surgery. Right. And the tumor's over multiple segments, although it really is emanating from one vertebral body. So, you know, we're fighting the blood loss, we're packing it, we're doing everything, work wearing every one other, you know how it goes, JP. I mean, it's like you try and do your best to stave off what is hardly controllable in these situations. Eventually we get it done, hours later, instrumented, tumor out, blood loss under control. Looking at the numbers at the end, we've lost almost four liters of blood. Wow. Um, anesthesia was doing their best to keep up. Blood products, you know, pack cells, FFP, platelets, you name it, right? Uh, and, and thankfully, was she was hemodynamically stable the whole time, despite all that. But we get it done. So, you know, pat ourselves on the back, tough case, got through it, uh, get her to the ICU, and that's fine. So next morning, I come in to see the patient, and she's had a lot of trouble with pain control overnight, not surprising, despite intravenous opioids and everything like that. And in particular, she's claiming a lot of hip pain that was new, that she hadn't, hadn't been having. It was contralateral to the, the side of the worst side of the fracture and weakness. Hmm. So we say, all right, well, let's get a CAT scan and see what's going on. And so sure enough, uh, tumor section looks good. All the reconstruction with the corpectomy cage and everything, intervertebral reconstruction looks good. One of the contralateral screws has got a medial breach. Hmm. So meaning the screws in the spinal canal, but not by a lot. Yeah. Uh, but it's L2, and she's complaining of this hip pain on the same side, and it's not clear because that could just be referred pain from the surgery, but is it the screw? 
not really sure. I'm sweating this. Son's a physician. You know, oh, what are we going to do here? I really want to get her through this well and, and, and the best possible outcome for her. But earlier in your career, you know, not tolerating any mistakes you right. know, and uh, or issues, I should say. And um, so we talk it over with the son. I say, you know, I really think we need to take it back to the OR and reposition the screw so she doesn't have this pain and we don't have to worry about it. Hemming and hawing. It sounds like another operation. She just got through this one. Are you sure about this? And I said, well, you know, I, re- I really think we should. And, you know, in retrospect, you could say, well, you could try and treat her with steroids. It's a pain medication. See if you can get her through it. But I was of a mind of like, look, we're here now. Let's get this done and take care of. And I really was sensitive to the fact, you know, here's this this healthcare provider, family member, and I wanted to know that I'm doing everything possible to get the best possible outcome for his mother. So we take her back to the OR and uh, actually fairly straightforward screw revision, put it in, correct. You know, and again, this is doing instrumentation freehand before, you know, navigation like we do routinely now. We don't have any kind of malpositioning mm-hmm. hardware so again an evolution of technique and time has changed a lot of that and made me very sensitive to those kind of issues so so we get her through that get her back to the icu everything looks good she's feeling better actually hip pain goes away so there you go could be the screw could be it's another round of general time. anesthetic yeah. who knows yeah but it's good uh didn't see any problems while we were in there otherwise okay so a couple days go by she's actually recuperate, recuperating in the icu What's happened over the course there of the few days, though, is she's clearly going into hemologic derangement. Platelets are dropping, uh, you know, INR is drifting up. Uh, we're checking LFTs and that kind of thing. That's mm-hmm. all normal. Clearly related to the massive blood loss she probably had from the first surgery accompanied by a second surgery. So we're trying to control that with transfusions, you know, but she's also starting to get fluid overloaded, so we don't want to do that. And it's that careful balance of trying to take care of this patient. Clearly, kind of on edge metabolically and hematologically. So another day goes by and sure enough, she starts having some drainage from her wound. I'm like, okay, what is this? And uh, it's, it looks to be kind of clear colored, clearish rather, I should say. And so, you know, I say, why we're having clear liquid, you know, you worry about spinal fluid leak, but we didn't have a spinal fluid leak during the surgery. So this was kind of shocking. So then I started thinking, well, maybe it's from the screw breach. Initially, we just didn't mm. see it at the take back. I'm like, well, let's see if we can just watch this. and. We're sending beta-2 transferrin to check for CSF. We wait for that. Sure enough, as we're waiting for that, the wound blows up with a huge collection. Mm. Uh, like, well, this has got to be CSF. we got to go back and deal with this. Again. So take her back to the OR again, right, because this thing is obviously threatening the wound. Get in there. It's a huge wound hematoma. All right? Mm. Don't even find CSF. If there had been any, it's clearly sealed, right, by the time we get there blood because patch. of the blood patch. Right? Yeah. So she's had a massive wound hematoma from this hematologic derangement, coagulopathy. Evacuate that, close her up, drains the whole thing. A few more days go by, all right? Nursing her through this, trying to manage to get the drains out. Next day, boom, another huge hematoma in the wound. Yeah. All right, don't know if it was from drain removal. You don't know. It's just these things, it's just unpredictable. This one, not now she's weak in the legs. Hematoma's so big it's compressing mm. the fecal sac and spinal cord. So... Got to take her back to the OR again. Another evacuation of hematoma, leave drains. We're going to leave those forever if need be, whatever. Right. Uh, no spinal fluid leak. Get her back to the ICU. Okay. And how are the conversations with her and her son through these? I mean, as you said, he's an ICU physician, so he's got to understand hematologic issues, but he's also her son. So how are, how are those talks going? 
So it's a very good question, JP, because it, what I recall happening is an evolution of these conversations, right? With each iterative sort of uh, issue that came up for this patient that required us to take her back to the OR or do whatever, the son seemed to be becoming more and more accepting of the fact that this was a difficult course, like mm. he would have seen in his practice in a nice period of time. And the patient, I think, was obviously becoming more and more frustrated and concerned. Yeah. And I could see him trying to reassure her, you know, hey, look, these things happen. They're doing all the right things to take care of it, you know, but clearly she was becoming distraught. So he's clicking into work mode and kind of getting it. This is a complicated patient, but she's obviously how many times do you have to reoperate? Like what's going on here kind of thing. Right. He's realizing what is going on here, which is that she's got a complex medical situation. Um, But at the same time, like we all do, his work mode is clicking in as a self-protective, you know, device for himself. Yeah. Right. To manage his own feelings and concerns about his, his mother. So, so it, it was interesting to watch that and taught me a lot about, about how families deal with their own family members' illness and, 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 and eventually informed me in terms of dealing with my own family members' illness. So, but in any event, um, we get that settled down and she's looking good actually. Pain's much improved. There doesn't appear to be much bleeding coming out of the drains. We're getting things under control. It seems like kind of fluctuating numbers in her coagulopathy. So a few more days go by. I'm thinking, hey, we're getting ready to transfer out of the ICU. You know, this we're finally turned the corner on this whole thing, and we're going to get her on to her next stages of care for her cancer and go from there. Get a call, 5 o'clock in the morning, chief resident. Yeah, your patient's uh, uptunded. She's non-responsive in the ICU out of nowhere all of a sudden. I said, what? She's been looking great. What's happening here? So, yeah, we got a head CT, and sure enough, uh, she's got a massive hemorrhage from what appears to be uh, a previously unknown brain metastasis from her cancer. Wow. So huge intraparenchymal hemorrhage with intraventricular extension, subdural hematoma, tons of shift, you know, all this kind of thing. So it turns out her coagulopathy hadn't been perfectly corrected and sure enough had this hypervascular brain met and, mm. and it decided on that day to pop. So I come in, call the son, and we have a long conversation so look, we can you know try and evacuate as much blood as possible, put a ventricular drain in her, get the med out, you know, uh, all these kind of options. And he said, no, you know, that's enough. Wow. So clearly he'd reached and he said she would not want this. Clearly knowing, and as we explained, that her the outcome from this was not going to be good. Um, and and sure enough, later that evening she hemorrhaged further and herniated, and that was the end. Yeah. So. Uh, it was that night that we terminally extubated her, and you know, the son, you know, uh, as a critical care doctor, correctly understood that it was time. Yeah. Um, and and I'll never forget. I mean, that that terminal extubation was one of the hardest ones I've ever witnessed in my career. Uh, I think because of how invested I felt in the patient, like we all feel, and we feel invested in all our patients. Yeah. Um, There's something specific about this early in my career, and. and the amount of effort uh, that everyone had put into her care to try and get her through this and what ultimately felt like we were up against impossible odds uh, no matter how we tried to uh, mitigate those and uh, correct as many of the problems that as they cropped up uh, we just couldn't couldn't avoid them all um, and, and that last conversation with the son was um, 
particularly challenging. Yeah. Because um, he, he, it, it finally dropped for him. And I think he dropped the physician facade and was obviously in tears. And, um, it, it, was, it was interesting and difficult to watch that transition as well in him. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's obviously so many facets to this that I want to get into, but I, I wonder if you could put yourself back in your mindset around that time. Obviously, you're still working through all this. You're taking care of other patients, and then there's always the next one. Can you remember what your mindset and your approach was like the next spine met, the next renal cell you saw? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, I think working through it um, is the hard part in many ways. You know, you have to understand, I mean, it's next next case up, next patient up, you know, new day. Um, you know, but those kind of cases will give you plenty of sleepless nights. Right. You know, and then you're coming in tired, fatigued. Other people need your help. you got to do the job. Um, and, and it requires you know, tremendous focus to avoid the distractions knowing that this mm. patient's being cared for by multiple people, you're not the only one. Right. <laughs> and you have to trust those other people who are working uh, with that patient. Um, and that when you're needed, you're needed. And, you know, you spend your time uh, well uh, taking care of that patient, but you got other people to take care of. So I think that is, that is a challenge, right, in any of these difficult cases. But in terms of the next one up, right, I mean, once bitten, twice shy. Yeah. And uh, so... There were so many lessons from that early, you know, early in the career of like, you know, when that, you know, hypervascular tumors, you know, embolize if you at all possibly can, right? Blood uh, loss management during surgery, right? We've just come so far with that, yeah. both in the realms of deformity surgery and in, in oncology. Um, we do such a better job now in terms of blood loss management. Um, initial workup of these patients with metastatic disease. Now, granted, she was urgent surgery and we didn't really have a lot of options, but we're so aggressive and diligent about systemic workup for these people. Oh, yeah. Um, you know you know how it works, JP. We do it every day here. Um, so that we know what the oncologic status of this patient is. We know what the overall health status of the patient is. And, and even for the emerging cases, we do it as soon as we can right after the case is done. Yeah. So that we not just can inform the family, um, and not just so oncology can stage them, but so we can make good decisions for the patient, you know, decisions that are made within the context of their overall oncologic care. And, and that's true of health status, not just for oncology, but deformity and you name it, other disciplines, vascular surgery. Yeah. So I think, you know, when I came, you know, next case comes up, you're, you're thinking about 400 things at once, right. you know, and anticipating uh, all the things that can go wrong. Uh, and complication avoidance, obviously, is something we all practice. But the more complications you see, the more you think about avoiding. Right. And uh, that, that certainly, you know, happens uh, with each successive case you see. But this one, because it was so early in my career, was sort of the beginning of that process, certainly, with this disease, this type of disease. Yeah, you know, we, I mean, the residents here, we jokingly call it the O'Toole Protocol. When we get any kind of spine on consult, the exhaustive list of labs and imaging and just everything we know you're going to want to know which is nice because then we know everything that you could possibly want to know about a spine on console. Um, and so when, when I asked you to come on to do a story, I hoped you would pick something in this area because I wanted to see part of the genesis of this 
hyper detail oriented approach you take to these patients because among our attendings I think you're one of the most detail oriented in my experience and it's because you have these complex patients with these complex systemic diseases that we're taking part taking care of part of that systemic process and so I'm I'm curious and this is kind of an introspective question this might be unanswerable but have you always been like that or have you always been a very detail oriented hyper focused nitty gritty person and that drew you to this complex subfield of spine surgery and spine oncology or do you think being in this field and working in this milieu where you have to focus on, on all those little details kind of pushed you that way in your thinking if if that's even something that you so, can answer yeah i mean if you're asking me where on the spectrum of ocd and anal retention i am for neurosurgery <laughs> you know we're all two standard deviations off the norm right yeah. in, in those parameters so it's hard to separate out um you know, it's, I think this is these types of careers are hard to do well if you don't have attention to detail. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I certainly think I'm 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 at the you know one end of that, uh, and that's one of the things that drew me to neurosurgery. Right. Right. And drew us all, I'm sure drew us all neurosurgery. The details, not only because we're used to living our lives managing details, right, outside of work, um, but also the details are so interesting, right, like mm. and, and so compelling and make such a huge difference in, in people's lives, right? So little details can completely change the course of a patient's, you know, care or illness or whatnot. And uh, knowing that you can um, influence those is a big part of this. You know, the, the control freak nature, you know, that I, right. I, I try to suppress when I can, you know, <laughs> Uh, can can be overwhelming when you realize in a case like this there are things you cannot control right and we did everything possible for this patient and you know sometimes like I said it gets the better of you so that was one of those cases that taught me early on you know control the things you can and accept the things you can't yeah absolutely I mean it, it seems like such a common theme through that story which I'm glad that you highlighted was bit by bit, each step of the way, you were doing everything that was technically available at the time. And so if this patient presented last night, this outcome might be wildly different. The hospital course might be wildly different, not because, I mean, of course, you're further in your career. So yes, you're, you're more experienced in your decision-making, you're more experienced in your technical execution, but more importantly, the tools available to you and the systemic treatment available to this patient with the coagulopathy, with the intraoperative blood control, et cetera, et cetera. That has evolved to such an extent that the outcome might be different. And I mean, that, that serves to remind us that we're always operating with the tools available today. And so think about the cases that you have today, the patients that you have this year, and what that care might look like compared to in 30 years, right? Right, no, maybe dramatically different. And not have any cancer cases anymore, who knows? <laughs> maybe. Awesome. Well, Dr. O'Toole, that, that's a phenomenal story, both just to hear, but also to think about um, how it shaped your practice and kind of, as you said, the, the history and the evolution of care for spine oncology patients and complex spine surgery in these past years. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing that. Thank you, JP. Wow. What a phenomenal story from Dr. O'Toole. Again, so grateful for him to come on the show and share that with us. 
Uh, now I'm here with Dr. Wang just to kind of sit down and unpack that story and, and think about what we can learn from it and get another perspective on that story. Um, it's interesting, Dr. Wang, it, something I've heard you say several times, including on the show, I think, you, I've heard you say that if the only surgeries you did were for infection or for tumor, you'd be the happiest surgeon in the world. And from what I understand, you say that because in these cases, oftentimes you meet someone who is experiencing extreme pain. You can do usually a relatively limited surgery, a straightforward, small procedure, and make that pain go away. But of course, some of these cases, whether infection or tumor, like we just heard from Dr. O'Toole, can often be more complicated than that. And so I, I, as soon as I heard this story from him, I was curious what your take would be and what your reaction would be hearing about this larger, more involved, and as we heard all the sequelae in this case, a much more complicated case of spine surgery for tumor. Yeah, thanks, JP. And I, and I really want to thank John O'Toole for sharing with us a very compelling story um, that has a lot of lessons to teach us on, on a number of fronts. Um, I think the the way that he handled that case was appropriate. Um, but but you're right. When I And I would add trauma to the tumor and infection category. Right. When we're talking about those diseases, they are more complicated. The patients are more sick, but also... As a surgeon, it's easier to, I don't want to say distance yourself from the problem, but when you're treating, and this is this may change in the future, but when you're treating degenerative diseases, there's this thinking that it's purely elective. And so if anything bad happens, it's that much worse psychologically. Like, you know, if, if you were if you were doing a deformity surgery and the person died afterwards, then everybody you run into is going to potentially ask you, why did you even do that operation? But in this particular case, I think that I got the impression that Dr. O'Toole felt very comfortable with the decision-making, not the outcome, but that he probably would have played this the same way in general even now, right? Is that the, That's the impression I got. I, I mean, I obviously can't speak for him, but that's also how I felt speaking with him. And, you know, as he said, this patient came in acutely weak with acute compression. And I think anyone would agree your hand is kind of forced. You have the patient in front of you with symptomatic acute compression of neural elements you have to decompress. And that's the situation he found himself in. Well, I can tell you uh, about one year of my life, not too long ago, uh, I'm not going to say the exact year, but I had two deaths in a year, which is, a, I may have one a year out of, you know, 600 surgeries or something like that, but I had mm -hmm. two that year, and one was a cancer patient, much like Dr. O'Toole's patient, and the other one was a person who had a major deformity surgery, and they both, they both died, and they both had understanding families, so there was no weird family dynamic where someone was blaming me, because that happens too, right? Right. Um, so I would say it's relatively consistent in terms of the external factors weighing in on me. Um, I don't think that they were very different in terms of the actual traumatic elements of, of what happened in the events. And I, again, I for the audience that are not surgeons, I'm not trying to make this all about the surgeon because we could come across as sounding incredibly narcissistic. But of course, every surgeon that has any humanity in them, these events are major, major deals. And um, in that year, I remember the, the, the cancer patient that died. I was like, well, in, the, in my mind, I am secretly thinking this is a person who probably would have died anyways from metastatic disease in a number of months or years. Um, the cancer got to them. They were coagulopathic because of the cancer, et cetera, et cetera, right? Whereas 
with the deformity patient, I could make those arguments, but they would ring hollow mm. to many people. And so I think the psychological impact of the surgeon is different in that regard. You know, the, there's somewhere I want to go with this, but first I want to push back at you a little bit, but in a positive way, because I think it is easy, like you said, to think of deformity surgeries as an elective procedure. It's not a life-threatening illness, but I, I think, and you know this far better than I do, but anyone who's met a patient with severe symptomatic deformity, you could look at our, our literature in the past decade, the ISSG and, other, and others have shown the health impact of symptomatic deformity. It is a serious illness. It's something that people are willing to put their life on the line to have corrected. And so even though it's not something like cancer that's going to end a life within the next year or two, it is a serious disease. And, and that's why people are willing to undergo such invasive surgeries for it. But more importantly, where, where I really want to take this before we have to wrap is this idea of, of operating on, as you said, the, it, you'd be happiest if you only did infection, tumor, or trauma. Something I've grown to appreciate in the past few years interacting with these different classes of patients is that in the, in the setting of trauma, you typically have someone, uh, because of how traumas happen, who are often younger, healthier, and they don't really have any intrinsic disease. They have this extrinsic pathology that is forced on their nervous system, on their body, by mechanical forces. But in the setting of these tumor patients, there is intrinsic disease. And it's interesting because something Dr. O'Toole often says to, to us at Rush is when he's talking about degenerative disease and deformity, he, he'll often say, there is no disease here. We're not treating disease. We're, we're fighting against time. We're fighting against the natural history of having a spine and standing upright. But in the setting of tumor, in the setting of cancer patients like this, there really is an intrinsic disease that you're fighting against. And so I think your point's well taken that whatever your outcome is, obviously you, you want to have that great outcome where you decompress, you stabilize someone, you relieve their pain, and you make them comfortable. But when things go wrong, there is that temptation. There is that little, you could say, devil on the shoulder for the surgeon that says, oh, it's okay they were sick, this wasn't going to last too long anyhow. And I, I think that's something we all have to struggle with, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I, you're right. And I would, I, I'm glad you're pushing back because I actually, of course, agree with you about your statement about how we view these diseases. But let me just throw something else in the mix in response to what you just said about the intrinsic nature of disease. So right now we look at tumors as being almost like an it's like an alien mutated form of you invading you it's you can envision this almost like a war right? right but we don't view degenerative disease that way now one day we may change our whole philosophy as dr o'toole himself said maybe cancer will be cured right but right. what if telomere lengthening or aging or whatever you want to call it right is really the disease yeah. And and so I think that our whole concept of disease, just like 100 years ago, psychiatric diseases were viewed very differently. I think that is 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 mutable. And I think for the young people listening, you know, you're in your, your teens or 20s, you may see a complete revisitation of how things how things are looked at. And that's why neurosurgery is so interesting. And let me let me just add an aside, because it's so easy to talk about spine this way. But let me give you a cranial analogy. If you were to take two patients who died after surgery and one had a microvascular decompression for facial pain or tic de la rue, and the other one had even a benign meningioma. I think that in the cranial world too, it would be viewed differently. 
that oh well the mvd was for pain and who cares just live with the pain and then the tumor patient that's a tumor and i think that's something about our culture um not so much that's really grounded in true science uh and i'm sure a lot of people respond by saying no no you're wrong and i'm i'm open to that but i'm just going to throw that out for as food for thought well you're you're so right there's actually you, you know i i'll i'll out myself is one of my strange niche hobbies is is i semi follow other areas of medicine nutrition fitness medicine and one of them i'm actually pretty interested in age research and there is a whole camp of physicians out there who as a philosophy as a philosophical position define aging as a disease condition and they take that approach to try to treat and ameliorate the effects of aging. So your point is very well taken that these things that we call degenerative, that we call natural, may in fact be overcome one day. Well, we've certainly covered a lot of ground. And, and again, my hat's off to John O'Toole, who's an amazing spine surgeon, amazing leader in our field. Of course, one of your mentors at Rush. Uh, John, thank you for, for sharing with us a very heartfelt case. And we look forward to the next case that I can never forget. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.